0: From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Colorado's legislature has been passing stricter gun laws at an unprecedented pace, but opponents have a new tool to try to roll them back the courts, after a pivotal U.S. Supreme Court decision. It changes the complete trajectory of, of how gun laws can be litigated and how they can be enacted. We'll explore the mounting court challenges with public affairs reporter Vinta Berkeley. Then, finding better ways to support survivors of domestic violence in Colorado. And later, some of Colorado's largest factories must reduce pollution under new state rules. So, why are environmental groups upset? And finally, he turned his garage into a tribute that celebrates 80s rock and roll.
1: I may be old, but in my brain, I'm still like 30. Yeah. You know, I mean, I'll rock and roll till I die.
2: Every member has that moment when they decide it's time to start supporting Colorado Public Radio. Make this your moment. Call or text GIVE to 800-496-1530 and make your gift today. This is Colorado
0: Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. The Democrats who control state government have gotten increasingly comfortable in recent years with passing new gun laws, but it looks like gun rights supporters now have an increasingly powerful tool to push them back, the courts. CPR's Benta Birkeland has been following the issue and joins me now. Hi, Benta. Hi, Chandra. Benta, I'm going to get to the big picture in a minute, but I want to start with what's going on right now, because another new gun law just took effect this past weekend. Tell us about that.
3: Yes. Um, it requires almost anyone buying a gun to wait three days until they can legally have the firearm. Supporters say that by requiring buyers to wait the, you know, a, f- a few days, mm. it gives those thinking of suicide or homicide time to cool down, change their mind. And Colorado is far from the first place to do something like this. A number of other states have passed laws requiring a waiting period for firearm purchases. And it was a personal issue for one of the lead sponsors, Democratic Representative Judy Immobile. She believes that this is the only reason her son is alive, because she and her husband were able to persuade a gun store owner not to sell her son a firearm that he intended to use for suicide. And is this law going to face a legal challenge? It already is being challenged. Actually, on Sunday, the very first day the law took effect, a Colorado firearms instructor named Alicia Garcia went to a gun store in Littleton, bought a gun, and was told she couldn't take possession of it for three days. Mm. Doing that gave her the legal standing she needed to sue to block this waiting period law. She's working with the Second Amendments Group Rocky Mountain Gun Owners on the lawsuit. What's their argument against the law? So their lawsuit says the waiting period violates people's Second Amendment rights to buy a firearm without being burdened by, quote, arbitrary, unnecessary, burdensome and useless delays. One concern from gun rights supporters is that the law could delay or prevent people like victims of domestic violence from getting a firearm that they may need to defend themselves. And they also say, look, if you're buying a gun for lawful purposes, there shouldn't be any arbitrary delay. And I actually got to talk to Garcia and hear a little bit about her story. She was raised in part in Southern Colorado where she says responsible firearm ownership was just a part of the way of life.
4: My father raising me to understand the importance of my safety and the value that I possess and you know how important it is to be responsible for my own safety.
3: And she's become a passionate advocate for gun ownership and against stricter gun laws because she said she believes these laws are a way to take away communities' civil rights. I was experiencing biases, I was experiencing hatred,
4: I was experiencing prejudice against me because I was a proud and responsible gun owner. And it inspired me to be
0: the change. So that's Alicia Garcia, the plaintiff in the lawsuit
3: contesting the three day waiting period. Have the courts acted on her suit yet? Not yet, but if recent rulings are a guide, the courts appear to be more open to the arguments Garcia and Rocky Mountain gun owners are making than in the past. Why is that? Well, last year, in something called the Bruin ruling, the U.S. Supreme Court's conservative majority set a new standard for evaluating gun laws. So it essentially requires states to prove that any restrictions they put on how people own or use firearms have historical precedent that goes back to the early days of the country. And Timothy Litton is a professor at Georgia State University College of Law. He also says that this means that states have a high bar to meet this standard.
1: In order to show that this restriction is consistent with the nation's tradition of firearms regulation and that can be very difficult and it's opened up a whole wide range of different debates about the history of firearms regulation in the country and in some ways it's kind of blown open the question of whether or not states can restrict firearms in the ways that they have traditionally done so for example by limiting the age at which a person can purchase a firearm by limiting the type of firearms accessories that can be sold or used in the state
3: and that's already starting to play out in the courts where the state's gun laws, including Colorado, are having trouble justifying these laws under this new historical precedent standard.
0: Does that mean other Colorado laws have been blocked because of this
3: new legal standard? Yes, actually, that's exactly what happened to another of Colorado's laws earlier this summer. This is a law that raises the minimum purchase age for all types of firearms to 21 years old. Rocky Mountain gun owners sued to block that, and a judge ruled that the law should stay on hold, so it's not being implemented, while the case makes its way through the courts. Is the state trying to find historical precedents to defend these new laws? It is, but courts are still figuring out what really qualifies under this new standard. So in the age limit case, Governor Jared Polis's administration highlighted examples from English common law, as well as rules and laws from the early days of this country about gun possession by college students, and then people who refused to swear allegiance to the United States. But the court rejected those arguments. And according to the judge, these examples didn't occur close enough to the founding of the country. Hmm. But um, I, I should mention, federal courts in other states have ruled differently and upheld various gun laws.
0: This all sounds pretty confusing for the courts and for the states.
3: I think it is. And at this stage, it's very hard to know exactly what the long-term implications of all of this will be because courts around the country are still trying to figure out how to implement the Bruin decision. Here's Professor Lytton again.
1: This is a wide open question. And I think that the Supreme Court has so fundamentally changed the way that we think about firearms restrictions and their constitutionality that we're likely to see a lot of this litigation and much of it is gonna to have to percolate up to the Supreme Court for further clarification.
3: And some of it already has. The court has agreed to hear a, a gun case this term. And in that case, the Bruen standard was used to strike down a 30-year-old federal law that prevents people with domestic violence restraining orders from having guns. How the Supreme Court decides that issue might shed uh, quite a bit of light on how it wants courts to treat other gun laws
0: if these laws continue to be struck down by the courts what kind of effect do you expect this to have on lawmakers advocating for them will we see fewer gun bills introduced at the state capitol
3: i don't necessarily think so democrats still hold a wide majority in the colorado legislature so they are able to pass this type of legislation and i talked to several democrats who said they don't plan to let this slow them down because they say there is a critical need to confront gun violence, an epidemic in the country. They say they're well aware though that the courts are quote, not on our side, and they acknowledge it's going to be challenging and arduous. I attended an event this summer on gun violence prevention uh, hosted by Democrats and Eileen McCarran is the co-founder of the nonprofit Colorado Ceasefire and the group advocates for stricter gun laws. And she urged advocates to stay involved remain active and think big.
4: With regard to the Supreme Court, we've got to maybe change some minds on the court, which is a really difficult process,
5: and change people.
3: Democratic lawmakers have also talked about working on legislation in areas where they might be able to find some common ground with Republicans. So for instance, they passed a law earlier this year that makes it illegal to construct or own a gun without a manufacturer it's your only number. So those are known as ghost guns. Mm. Republican lawmakers voted against the bill, but some high profile conservatives outside of the state capitol actually supported it. Has that law been challenged in court? Not yet, but it doesn't take effect until the start of next year. So we'll see what happens.
0: Mm. Benta, thanks for putting all of that into perspective for us. Thanks for having me. That was CPR public affairs reporter Benta Berklin talking about legal challenges to Colorado's gun laws. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.
2: For decades, public radio has been a reliable source for fact-based news and independent music programming. But also for tote bags. If you don't have a public radio tote bag yet, or you just want another one, make a gift of $15 a month and our new tote bag can be yours. It's durable and spacious, features Colorado-themed graphic art, and shows off your support for the service you love. Check it out and donate at CPR.org.
0: October is Domestic Violence Awareness Month, and a new state task force is looking into ways to better support survivors of domestic violence, sexual assault, and related crimes as they navigate the legal system here in Colorado. House Majority Leader Monica Duran of Wheat Ridge co-sponsored the legislation to create the task force. This issue is very personal to Representative Duran. We spoke in April as lawmakers were were debating the measure.
4: As a survivor, I understand a lot of the challenges and difficulty when you're going through the process, right? When you're going Mm -hmm. through um, trying to get whether that be a protection order, whatever that might be, um, just how difficult and how at times you feel like you're re-victimized again when you go to court. And Mm. from my experience and talking to different survivors through the years. And with the work that I do here at the legislature, um, whether that be running House Bill 1255, which was requiring those who had a protection order against them to relinquish their firearms, or whether mm-hmm. that is you know, funding right mm-hmm. for um, crime victims, including domestic violence, sexual assault. I hear over and over again how survivors feel like when they're going through the process, through the court process, They feel that there is a lack of not just sensitivity, but knowledge when it comes to those who have been through domestic violence, especially if they are in court. One story I continuously hear is the fact that when we have to go to court, whether that is for that protection order or whatever it is, there seems to be a disconnect between the judge, court staff, when we are there. And because it's very traumatizing as a survivor when you've been physically, emotionally and mentally abused and your offender is there, it's a form of intimidation and fear. And there is a lack of knowledge on the other end. And that's what this task force and my hope is with this task force is to be able to draw attention to that and make change, transformational change.
0: Representative Duran also points out the new law had bipartisan support.
4: My co-prime on this is Representative Gabe Evans, who was in law enforcement and really dealt with a lot of these cases, too. So through those conversations, we thought, you know what, I think the best approach to try to figure out a solution moving forward on how victims, when they go to court, aren't feeling like they're being re-victimized is let's create a task force. A task force that consists of different advocates, law enforcement, retired judges, different organizations, survivors, most importantly. Let's create a task force with all of these different voices so that over several months they can come together and put together a plan as to how can we better train judges in courts and make that process better, right? There's always room for improvement. So for me, and I think for many of us and for our our communities and our advocates who, who fight for this every day, this would really be transformational to really kind of bring this full circle, in other words, and full circle for me and what I went through in my challenges and struggles. The new task force
0: is expected to submit a report with its findings and recommendations next month.
4: They would have to come together Really, kind of figure out okay, what's the best path forward and bring that to us, bring that to, to me so that I can look at it and say, This is fantastic. We've had input from retired judges, law enforcement, you know, obviously, like I said, survivors, confidential advocate, because we want to make sure that we are. We're listening to, you know, to district attorneys, right, will be on here. Family law attorney would be on here. I wanted mm. to make sure that we had a judge from the rural counties, right, because in rural counties, those issues and challenges are different mm, um, th- than here in Denver. So their struggles and their needs are different than what we have here. So I want to make sure that the voices from our rural communities are heard. Also, a district court judge, I think, with experience in domestic violence, it's important to have. So it's a great group of leaders within our community that deal with these uh, issues every day and getting that feedback and input from them, I think will really kind of help carve out legislation for us to run next year.
0: What efforts will be made in terms of racial diversity, age diversity, and also things like the LGBTQ community, you know, know, those different dynamics. Are there any efforts in those
4: areas? Absolutely. Yep. A matter of fact, uh, some of that came up when we were in committee hearing in the House. And from that feedback, I ran an amendment on the floor making sure that we have that diversity. Once those recommendations are, are brought back, then I would sit down and kind of go through all that information. Myself and Representative Evans will go through their recommendations. And then from there, we can start forming our legislation for next session.
0: Okay, so would that be
4: more like legislation about implementation? implementation, you know, it's hard to say because I don't know what those recommendations are going to be. It would be trying to figure out the best path forward and, you know, just figuring out the best way to implement it. What are their suggestions? How are they suggesting we address judicial training? What does that look like? So there's going to be a lot of work that's going to take place once we get this information back. So I'm excited to see what that is. I'm actually really just excited that we're going to have this task force And we're actually having the conversation Mm -hmm. because for years and years, there is such a stigma when somebody has been through domestic violence and has come out the other end that it's really hard to have open conversations. And what this is going to be is open conversations of survivors who have gone through all of the processes from attorney to court to family court to everything like I went through really kind of listening to each other, right? That's the most important thing is let's listen to each other.
0: Thank you for sharing the details of this legislation, but also for sharing your personal story, because I don't ever want to underestimate how difficult that may be.
4: Well, thank you so much for the opportunity to share, to say we hear you and we're doing everything we can in the state of Colorado to make sure that that happens.
0: Thank you. Thank you. Democratic State Representative Monica Duran speaking with me in April about a new task force that is working to find ways to better support survivors of domestic violence, sexual assault, and similar crimes in Colorado. October is Domestic Violence Awareness Month. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.
5: Maybe you have seen the new black Colorado license plates. They're getting very popular, but... Uh,
6: where are the mountains?
5: Does black have any special significance? How and why did the DMV decide on these plates? And if your registration is still current, but you can't wait, can you get one too? Colorado Wonders digs into these new black license plates, and you can read all about it at CPR.org.
0: Under new state rules, some of Colorado's largest factories must reduce pollution. You might expect environmental groups to celebrate. But they're furious. CPR climate reporter Sam Frash spoke about this with Nathan Heffel. All
5: right. So these new climate regulations are aimed
7: at big manufacturing sites. Why are environmental groups uh, so angry about them? So environmentalists say the final regulations just give way too much leeway to big polluters. These new rules, they cover a really wide range of businesses, but the big similarity is that they all produce large amounts of climate warming pollution.
5: And are these places people in Colorado would easily recognize?
7: Absolutely. We're talking about 18 manufacturing facilities all around the state. This includes the Suncor Energy Refinery in Commerce City, the Molson Coors Brewery in Golden, the JBS Swift Meatpacking Plant in Greeley, and also in Greeley, The Leprino Foods Factory, which is actually one of the country's largest suppliers of mozzarella cheese. Hmm.
5: Why is the state trying to regulate these manufacturing facilities now?
7: You know, Colorado has a big goal to eliminate its contributions to climate change by 2050. A more specific reason is something called the Environmental Justice Act. This is a law Governor Polis signed more than two years ago, and it ordered regulators to cut industrial emissions 20% by 2030. That's compared to 2015 levels. And it further clarified that these climate efforts should come with air quality benefits for neighborhoods near manufacturing sites. Neighborhoods that include many lower income people, Black and Latino folks who, have long struggled with poor air quality. Governor Polis signed the Environmental
5: Justice Act into law, but now you're saying environmental justice advocates are furious with the
7: regulations
5: meant to put it into action. Why? Because it seems overall this would be a win.
7: Yeah. So a broad coalition of environmental groups supported that original legislation Then and now they've been pretty clear on their main goal. It's about forcing these companies to make emission reductions on site, cutting pollution that's harming communities right now. But companies warned if the state went too hard, if the regulations were too tough, it could force them to shut down, throttle their operations, even move out of state. And they insisted they should have other options for compliance to avoid that scenario. Options like buying credits from other companies that cut emissions ahead of schedule, or if those credits are available even paying the state for compliance. And the governor's administration responded to those concerns. Yeah, they were they were very responsive to those concerns. Air quality regulators approved the final rules Friday. It includes credit trading. It includes plans uh, for that compliance fund. And it even includes some complicated math for calculating these facilities' current pollution levels, math that environmental groups say will actually allow these facilities to increase pollution in the short term before tougher restrictions kick in before the end of the decade. Here's Ian Thomas Tafoya. He's the state director for Green Latinos, an environmental justice group.
5: What we saw was, once again, decision makers under the direction from Governor Polis have chosen polluters over people. I think that frontline communities are going to respond with more direct action and accountability over this latest failure.
7: So, Sam, direct
5: action. D- does that mean a
7: lawsuit? I think it could. Tafoya said that's one thing environmental groups are currently considering.
5: And what about the governor's administration? How are they defending these rules?
7: I spoke to Will Tour. He's the director of the Colorado Energy Office and one of the lead architects behind the governor's climate policy. And he said these rules are designed to require cuts by forcing companies to improve these facilities. Not by forcing facilities to close or cut back production, which would just move the emissions somewhere else in the country. He says the final regulations strike that balance. Sam, overall, what do you think this says about the governor's approach
5: to climate change? Because he's insisted it's one of his administration's top priorities.
7: Yeah, the governor is a big believer in the market economy's power to help with big problems like climate change. I think that's why he's pushed for e-bike rebates, electric car rebates, policies that empower consumers to make better choices for the environment and the climate. Where he's been far more skeptical is... Policies like this, questions of whether it's time to clamp down on private industry, especially when it's just Colorado doing it. It's not a broader national effort. Hmm. And these regulations, I think, are a reflection of that approach. The question now is if it'll cost him any allies in the environmental community.
0: All right. Thanks, Sam. Thank you, Nathan. Sam Brash from CPR's Climate Team speaking with Nathan Heffel. Our next interview with the governor is next week. What should we ask him? What do you want to inquire about that state government can affect? Email your questions for Governor Jared Polis to org. Please include your first and last name in your city. You may write out your question or leave a voice memo. Again, that's org. When we come back, turning a garage into a museum for 80s rock. This is Colorado Matters from CPR
2: News and KRCC. Say the name Guggenheim, and you might think of art, museums, philanthropy. The Guggenheim fortune was one of the world's largest in the 20th century, and it all began in Leadville in the 1880s with Meyer Guggenheim. The poor Swiss immigrant ran a small import business in Philadelphia for over 30 years. Then he bought two silver mines in Leadville, which changed his luck. Both mines made the Guggenheim family a lot of money. Their mining profits grew by adding a smelter in Pueblo. And expanded beyond Colorado and built an international industrial empire with M. Guggenheim's sons. Of the eight sons, Solomon established the flagship Guggenheim Museum in New York City. Simon was Colorado's U.S. Senator for one term. Benjamin, father of Peggy Guggenheim, was on the Titanic. He did not survive. But another millionaire with Leadville roots did. Molly Brown, a Colorado postcard from CPR with the support of National Jewish Health. A Colorado Springs man found a creative way
0: to deal with the isolation of the pandemic, an unexpected passion project. CPR's Dan Boyce takes us into his garage, or should I say museum, for 80s rock and roll.
6: Pedestrians walking downtown Colorado Springs may occasionally hear what sounds like a rock concert. Is it a loud bar? Maybe a house party? Well, it's just as likely Mark Jones rocking out in his garage. What am I seeing around me? Mark's little Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. The 72-year-old retired garbage collector has transformed this space into a temple of sorts to the gods of 80s rock. You know who we're talking about. Jeff
1: Leppard, Molly Crew, Poison, Jones, Jet, like I said.
6: Love baby, let me go all night. And you are not fitting a car in this garage. First, it'd be hard to get a car around the waist-high speaker Jones has guarding the entrance, a speaker with embedded dancing LED lights. Then there's the red carpet, the 80 or so Funko Pop dolls, the tables of memorabilia. That's before we get to the walls.
1: There's no space on any wall that you could put in a poster or decal or
6: sticker or placket or anything. Most all of it with his personalized, custom touch. All kinds of Sharpies, lighter stickers, and all kinds of stuff. His body is worn out from that long career lifting trash bins.
1: I may be old, but in my brain I'm still like 30. Yeah.
6: You know, I mean, I'll rock
1: and roll till I die.
6: He shows off a new Def Leppard tattoo on his forearm. His long goatee is dyed bright red. You see, this is all pretty much new to me. Mark Jones never used to be much of a music guy. He started going to concerts with friends about a decade ago, and for whatever reason, well into retirement, those 80s power ballads just latched onto his brain. I'm not trying to live the past, I'm living now. Not trying to be an old man trying to go back to his 20s at all. I just live for the day. This is all The penchant for collectibles does not stop at the garage. It stretches through his whole home. I have 14 electric guitars and some real good ones. Could use some tuning.
1: But unfortunately, I don't play the guitar. I've tried out here, but I just can't do it. My fingers don't work that way.
6: (laughs) But they look good hanging on the walls, he says. The shrine of his, it's the sort of celebration meant to be shared. He used to get that, people just walking by. Before, you know, a long time ago, people used to stop by all the
1: time. Not so much. Anymore. I think after coronavirus, people don't, don't do it as much as they used to, you know,
6: hang out and talk to strangers. And at this point in his life, friends and family are few and far between.
1: Like I said, during the week, I may not see, I see anybody at all, you know, except if I go out to check my mail. Yeah, I just don't see anybody at all, hardly, pretty much by myself,
6: which is not my choice, but that's just how it goes. And that's what you get from Mark Jones, this sort of stern, tight-jawed acceptance of where the world is at and where he's at, no complaints.
1: For the last 10 or 11 years, I've spent 12 hours a day out here. It just makes me happy because I, progress, you, know, you, you see something changing from nothing to something. I just got that, they just came out with that. Never Always it, tinkering
6: with it, switching things out, updating, He says it will never be finished.
1: It'll never be through. If it's done, then I got
6: nothing to do. I'm done, you know?
1: Take the bottle, take it up.
6: And after that long day of work out here, with a well-stocked fridge for passers-by, it's time to let loose and rock out in his garage. In Colorado Springs, Dan Boyce. CPR News.
0: See photos of this garage museum that pays tribute to 80s rock at cpr.org. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. This is listener-supported CPR News and KRCC.